2: Welcome back, everybody. Lovely to have you with us for more life-changing stories from the Pride of Britain, the podcast brought to you from all of us on the Pride of Britain team and our friends at TSB. Now, as you probably realised, we love to talk about the things that matter most, and this week is no different. Believe it or not, this year sees the UK's LGBTQ community mark 50 years of pride. That's half a century of celebrating and campaigning for inclusivity and visibility. In this week's episode, we'll be revisiting that remarkable timeline, speaking to those pushing for change right at the very beginning, then and also now. We're joined by a host of important voices in this campaign, including the Force of Nature, who is presenter and DJ Jay Sky. TSB's Emma Springham and veteran activist and incredible woman with a quite remarkable story and a Pride of Manchester winner, Lucia Fitzgerald. First of all, I managed to grab Jay Sky for a frank and a pretty upbeat chat about his remarkable journey. Well, hello, beautiful man. I look first of all, I love your
3: earrings. Thank you. I mean, what's an outfit without an earring?
2: <laughs> <laughs> and the and the idea that you've got this whole rack of clothes behind you. Just absolutely love it. Really, really do. Now, I want to talk about your life because you look so fabulous. I mean, you look absolutely, you know, I, I put the camera on here and it's like boom. <laughs>
3: I mean coming from you, room. Carol. You're the one that's known for being fabulous. <laughs> I'm a mere mortal in your shadows. <laughs> hardly. The state of me. But tell me about your background, first of all. I'm a born and bred Mancunian. Um, my parents, my mum was born in Jamaica. She came over to the UK when she was six years of age on a plane by herself. Very brave woman, very incredible story there.
2: By herself.
3: Um, yeah, she was, wow. she, was she was left behind, so she had to make <sighs> the journey back on her own. Um And she's just an amazing woman. She's not like too mad at my family about it but she's like very <laughs> inspiring um my dad's dad um who passed away last year he was from st Kitts, so it's quite a mixed heritage that i've got and um i went to school in whitefield and then to college in bury and to university in huddersfield i am a singer songwriter and a presenter i've done a lot of different random things but i assigned the name Jay sky at college and um, by a music producer that i wanted to work with at the time i was calling myself Jay style because i was like you know i could do any style of music i Want. and it's like if you're going to work with me I'm going to give you a new name but what I didn't realise was at the time he was actually taking the mick out of me and saying like this kid's got his head in the clouds he's never going to make it and the song that I wrote he ended up giving to another artist so he stole my song and I just had finished watching the film Tina Turner what's love got to do with it where she fought for her name because I'd been gigging with that name so I was like well if you're going to steal the song then I'm going to steal the name and I'm going to tell people it's because the sky's the limit and i just made it work since then <laughs> You seem to me like one of those people who makes everything work. You have to.
2: Whatever's handed to you, you make it work, don't you? Oh,
3: thank you. Well, you know what this industry is like, Carol. You've got to just roll with the punches sometimes.
2: (laughs) You do. Right, now tell us um, about your kind of history, you know, in terms of the LGBT uh, aspect of it and, and what it was like growing
3: up. It was the second year of uni that I finally accepted and understood that I was um not a straight person and um, I'm not the sort of person to shy away from things so that very weekend I got my mum down and my brother down to my halls and we went for a coffee and I told him and we all cried um and <laughs> <Did> you- <laughs> to be honest my mum and my brother they're very protective of me so if anything it just made them worry more and they just said like as long as you can be safe and not like put yourself in too much danger I think I've probably made them worry even more since because I think I've kind of pushed it as far as I can at the moment (laughs) um but it's just been a a long journey in terms of finding out um what I like doing and how I like to express myself but also um I was always taught to dress for the job that you want in life, for the position that you want. So when I graduated from university and I started to make, because I thought Manchester was too big a scene to crack away white to stay in Huddersfield, but I braved it because I knew some of the popular girls at uni who were doing promotions and all of the VIP events in the, on the straight scene in Manchester. Um, and I just thought perfect because the gay scene at the time wasn't accepting of me. I won't get into the clubs there. They'd say like members only, um, you, you can't come. There's, there's too many people what? in the club. It, it, it was very restrictive. So I just thought, fine. Because what I'd always done is if people didn't accept me, I, I, I'd make a way to make them jealous, which is so petty. <laughs> so, like, for example, <laughs> when I lost all my friends at high school, at uh, college, because they thought I was gay, I thought, right, I'm going to be friends with the best looking girls. So then they're going to want to have to be my friend. And I just thought the same thing here. I just thought, right, I'm going to make myself known on the straight scene. So the gay scene accept me. So I got in with all of the VIP clubs and... Um, I just was told to dress for the job I wanted. And I thought, well, I'm a singer-songwriter. So I want to dress as a pop star. You find what works. But it's just interesting that people treat you so differently depending on what you're wearing. Yeah, and definitely. that's something I, I'm still playing with at the moment. Now I'm, I'm pushing in different ways. But um, in terms of how to, to, to identify who I am and where I am right now, I'd say that I'm still massively expressing myself in in all of the facets of fashion and and visuality but also pushing the envelope of what makes a man a man and what makes a woman a woman
2: so tell me about that then
3: It can get so confusing. And to be honest with you, I make a lot of mistakes. And I think that's something that we all need to just learn to accept is that people can have the best of intentions and still make mistakes. So we should be a lot more forgiving. I'm not a fan of cancel culture. I'm not a fan of, Um, okay, we've decided everyone needs to display their pronouns. And if you don't, you're not an accepting person. I'm not that sort of person to be militant about anything. And I think a lot of the younger people coming up, unfortunately, with the best of intentions are being too militant with it um also if you're going to be strict and say what are your pronouns because i know pronouns are a big thing for a lot of people today you've got to understand some people don't actually know what their pronouns are they're still discovering themselves so i don't think that's the be all and end all i think if you're going to put your energy anywhere it should be into looking at the law and what rights we can fight for and not for things that just look good at a surface level terminology changes week by week the flag even changes week by week so i'm It's just being understanding that everyone's going to be different and things affect people differently. I'm not saying like if someone says this is my pronoun, don't respect that. Respect what anyone says about how they want to be defined, whether that's their name or their pronoun. But also respect that someone might make an innocent mistake and also that someone might not want to define their life by how you define yours.
2: And so how are you defining yours then?
3: Well, I... I mean to be, to be honest with you I still see myself as a gay man but then for example I did I shouldn't really be airing this out but I did Salford Pride last weekend yeah and the presenter got, got me backstage before I went on stage and said what are your pronouns quick how do you identify and I'm like oh honestly pronouns don't bother me come what you like but I'm, I'm a gay man but I'm, I don't see the whole offense personally because if you're offended by calling a woman in my eyes it's like well why? There's lots of great, strong women out there. It's not the worst insult in the world to be called to her or she anymore. So to me, I just not? like to say, it's call me what you like, but I see myself as a man. And that's just the whole idea with dealing with insults on my life. You can say what you like about me, but how you see yourself is what's most important. Anyway, he goes on stage, and this is a non binary person that's presenting. Yeah. And he does this massive speech about, I really love Jay Sky just like me as a fellow non-binary individual. And I just thought, oh my God, he's got it completely. I'm not, I don't see myself as non-binary, but then again, backstage, someone else saw me as a drag queen. So I'm, I'm not offended by anything. I know how I see myself. And to be honest, RuPaul said it best. We're all born naked and the rest is drag. How we present to the world and what we <sighs> decide to dress and prepare for the world is just a form of makeup. End of the day, we get our clothes off, we go to bed and we start again. And so labels are just for boxes as far as I'm concerned.
2: Oh, a lovely speech i love that idea let's move on to your tv career so you, sure. you started causing trouble in manchester yes and uh, in, with your feathers and your sequins right I, I just i can't take my eyes off your earrings by the way Thank and your you. beautiful hair you really are a beautiful man can i it just means say a that? lot
3: coming from you carol vorderman well, because you are the <laughs> epitome of glamour like when i used to watch you on tv i was like that's how it's done that's it. Textbook. We can <laughs> all aspire. Oh,
2: okay. I need more feathers and sequins in my life, I have to say. Oh, don't we um, all? <laughs> don't we all? But I mean, sorry, I'm interrupting myself here, J Sky, because I've got, you know, a lot of, lot of game mates, as it probably won't surprise you. So, Owain Wyn Evans, who is him. the weatherman, my, is my, my, uh, my darling. So we're on the phone every day. Alan Carr, Gork. Um Now, I tell him every day now, H from Steps, right? So he has come, obviously we all know it, H oh, yeah. is gay and H is the most amazing dad to his twins, Max and Cubby. I mean, he <laughs> is incredible. But what he has been doing over the last, I would say, year or so, post-COVID, is his style of dressing, has changed dramatically
3: I've seen. he it. wears
2: makeup and i i keep saying to him um and you i hope you'll understand this i said to him last night actually he looked hot yes she cracked it it's h for hot now isn't it? <laughs> and have you found that it's got better probably since the rupaul show has been on for you
3: um I mean, life will always find a way to be challenging, especially when you go against the grain of what is considered acceptable. And I think in a lot of ways, I do go out on my way to push against that grain just because if I believe in something wholeheartedly, I, f- I feel like it's my duty, whilst I've still got the strength and whilst I'm still able to to do something about it. And it might seem like a small thing, me wearing like a ball gown on a red carpet, but there are people that'll be at home that I'll see that and will be inspired. And because of of who I am and and my connections and stuff, they'll see me being accepted by other people, straight people that they would not think would be accepting of that. Like people from Love Island or Tom Zanetti or whoever it is, if they see someone like that, being okay with how I am, it just changes the world in a small incremental way. But um, in terms of do I still get slack for it? Absolutely. I could be walking down the street. It could be public transport. It could be social media comments. It could be anything. But at the same time, if you are going to put you slack like me out there, I've got to expect the good and the bad. Everything in this world is in a state of balance and I can't just expect to be filled with love and worshipped. I mean, especially when I go home, I'm always going to get grounded and humbled there. But like, (laughs) at the end of the day, it's like, who am I living for? Am I living for the acceptance of other people or am I living to do what makes me truly happy and to do something that I feel is going to help people?
2: Um, Your media career (laughs) is fantastic. So you're on BBC Radio Manchester. yes. I love the title. Tell everyone what the title of your show is.
3: It's called The Dead Good
2: Show. That's <laughs> so mank. It's, it's typical. Yeah. Oh, it's Dead Good, is that? In yeah. Leeds, we say, right, right, nice. We say,
3: Leeds. The Right Nice Show.
2: <laughs> yeah, the Right Nice Show. The dead. So, what do you do on, on The Dead Good Show then?
3: So, on a Wednesday every week from 7 till 10. I'll be having guests on to talk to them. We'll dis- I'll have a panel from eight till nine i that'll discuss the latest news stories and showbiz and entertainment and politics. It could be anything that's really hot and trending. And then in the last hour, we'll get to hear about what I've been up to in the wonderful world of J Sky, along <laughs> with the soundtrack of BBC Radio Manchester. It's great. I love it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm gonna tune into that. Definitely. I've got to get you on
3: the show to be honest oh, I'd with you. I would love to be on.
2: Oh, I would absolutely love to be on. And um you're a presenter on Gadio. I love that name. Gay-Dio. Yes. It's the uh, largest is huge, LGBT
3: it? station in the world. So I do from seven till nine on a Monday with that as well. So yeah. the best of both worlds, commercial and BBC.
2: You're enjoying it. Now, a few people have seen you on the, quite a few on First Dates and on Channel 4. Right. And just explain what that
3: was. So back in 2015, yeah, um, I was on the third series of First Dates. But at the time, I hadn't seen an episode of it. Um, But I'd seen the trailer And on the season before I knew a girl that was on it And I thought God if she's got on it Then I'll get on it Which is really shady I know But I saw it and I thought (laughs) This is great Because I want to Make a name for myself But at the same time I want to fall in love It's like I was using the apps And stuff And I'd been single My whole life up to that point And I just thought Let's just do it And then if I fall in love successfully On TV I could be the nation's sweetheart It'd be great i will be the new Cheryl Cole But I I went on the (laughs) show And literally, like, I was so unprepared for it. I walked in thinking that Fred was my date. I was absolutely buzzing. I didn't have a clue what was going on. But it was a good experience. It was a really good experience. And um, it got, I think it got, like, about 2 million viewers, which at the time was a big deal, because I don't think Big Brother was getting that many. So it got in the book, and then I got on, like, in Attitude. It really helped a lot. But, um, unfortunately, the relationship was never meant to be. Like, I just played along a little bit for the cameras because i didn't want to be disrespectful it's like when you get socks for christmas and you're like oh great socks but you don't want to be rude (laughs) and you also don't want to get rejected on camera so you've also got to give a little bit to the to the guests as well haven't you (laughs) (laughs) so have you found love since then jay skype you know what? I have. Um, so I've been in a relationship for three and a half years now. Oh, it's wow. th- my first ever boyfriend and yeah. it's, it's working. I'm really lucky. He's the total opposite to me. Um, he's from the countryside. He's, and he's,
2: he's quiet. And he's quieter. quieter.
3: <laughs> <laughs> he's quieter. <laughs> but he's very private. Um, so he probably won't even like me saying that much about him. But he's, he's lovely. He's a true gentleman
2: oh yeah. that's lovely oh I'm glad you found <laughs> it life will never be dull with you that's for sure <laughs> ever 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 so you were a judge on this year's Pride of Manchester as in right. Pride of Britain awards what was that like for you
3: it was the greatest honour I got to do it last year but that was vi- um, virtual because of the lockdown of course yeah and, and even that felt incredible but like just to be a part of something where you can recognize people from your home city, a city I'm so proud of and um, for doing such amazing things. It's, it's the greatest honor and it's something I treasure a lot. Obviously people are like, don't do it because once you're a judge, you can't ever win. But I'm like, it's not about the winning with something like that. It's about being a part of it for me and I'm just so grateful.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> wonderful. Now, one of the things that, you know, a lot of people talk about every day because it happens to everyone is about the haters Right. Uh, You'll have particular kinds of haters. I have particular kinds (laughs) of haters. Lorraine would have particular kinds of haters. Dr. Hillary, whoever it might be. Everyone has their haters. Right. Um, And sometimes when you read the stuff, I tend not to read it because I just say, oh, do you know what? Life's too short. But when you do read it, it can damage people.
3: For me, like, when I first started, like, trying to make a name for myself and I was hanging around with some of the girls at Poly Oaks, they used to picture me and, like, take the mick out of what I was wearing and they used to call me and friend It'd be like, Stephanie Davis, and friend, George Far, and it was always and yeah. friend. But then the comment section would, on, like, the Daily Mail, for example, it would be about, <laughs> it would, like, George or Stephanie be like, what the hell is that thing, freak? And in one end, I'm like, uh-huh. God, they're calling me yeah, out. But in the other I was like, this article's got nothing to do with me, but all the comments are about me. There's some power in that somewhere. And then in the end, they started calling me like, God, I think the Evening News said music maestro. And then there was like, um, presenter. And before before they knew it, they settled on fashionista. And I was like, you know what? That's great. I'd never heard that before. And they've not stopped calling me since. And I still don't really know what it means. I just say that someone (laughs) that that likes to dress up and pushes the boat, but it's like, it's a nice term. And people have sort of like associated, like, oh, he's the Manchester fashionista I'll And I'll take that. um, But in terms of like, how do you manage haters? I think it's just a case of when you pick up your phone, because we're all addicted to our phones and to the internet in some respects, we have to ask ourselves, what is the point of us picking up our phone? Because if we're going into it with no point and no intention, then we're going to be, in a way, vulnerable to whatever we we see and receive. So for me, it's like if I'm doing it to promote myself, right, that's my focus. I'm doing it to send this tweet because that's my job. If I'm doing it to, to catch up stuff, right, that's what I'm doing it for. If I'm doing it because I care what people think about something, then I'll look at the notification, then I'll look at the comments. But you've got to be mentally prepared for the good and the bad. Otherwise, it'll take you by surprise and it'll knock you off your feet and you won't want to pick it up again. Um, so it's just remembering as well. It's also it's not real. And if you're not liking what you're seeing, you don't have to see it. Like I know people are all for like enforcing stricter policies on, on social media. Like, oh, you must have to verify your identity. I mean, people will always find a way to be a hater, whether you verify it or not. I think it's just a matter of if someone does something that's wrong, that's threatening, you report it if you don't like what you see from someone you block them you mute them you don't have to respond to everything because whatever you respond to you're just going to encourage more of what you resist persist I'm a firm believer in that and um if you feed into something it's it's going to grow so I just comment on the things that are nice and that I like and if someone tries to come for me then the best thing I can do is ignore them because end of the day all they want is my attention
2: yeah it's lovely to talk to you, Jay Sky. Oh, really thank
3: you. Brilliant. And thank you for all the amazing work that you continue to do, for being oh. such a shining light and such an amazing ally for the community. You're a legend. Oh, oh
2: thank <laughs> oh. you, darling. Thanks, Jay Sky. Thank you. Thanks, Jay Sky, wishing you all the very best. I still am jealous of your
3: earrings. At TSB, we're proud to partner with the Pride of Britain Awards because we want to say thank you to all the everyday heroes, to the ones who put the fun in fundraising. Or those who speak up for others, to the good natured few who plant seeds to feed communities, and to the warm hearted people who always have the kettle ready. TSB partners the Pride of Britain Awards, thanking those who help others, because that's life made more.
2: Now, as the Chief Marketing Officer at TSB, Emma Springham has seen firsthand how life in the corporate world has changed to embrace and acknowledge diversity in the workplace. She told me more. So Emma, you are the Chief Marketing Officer of TSB. And, you know, we're celebrating all over the country, lots and lots of different events. as 50 years of pride in the United Kingdom. And... I've been talking to uh, Lucia Fitzgerald, who's now, she won't mind me saying, 74. And uh, her story should be made into a movie, quite honestly. Um, And, and, you know, she remembers, and I think it's good to remember, and do you think it's good to remember, the early days when things were
0: not as they are now? I think it's really important to remember it. I came out nearly 30 years ago and... I was scared you know I was scared the feelings of shame and guilt and people finding out that's just in my personal life and then in my corporate life you know that was another element of if I'm going to be rejected in family and friends it's kind of you know this corporate was another sort of ladder really I suppose in in my life to kind of get through I think it's really important I've got twins they're 13 and the way they talk it's just it's a completely different conversation it's it's liberating. But for me, I remind them, you know, different stories of where we've come from and the history. And, you know, I really try and take them on that journey. So they realise that I've been on a journey, Um, you know, and then we're looking at other D&I aspects where they're not as progressed, actually. And what can we do to support? How good is the corporate
2: world? I'm not talking about TSB now, but generally, how good is the corporate world? Has it needed legislation for things to get better?
0: I think it's about the people. So every organization's different, whether it's big or small. You know, if I'm going over to a partner, I just think every company's different. But I think there's a real desire. I, I know there's a need because you've got to do it from a brand. You know, there's that bit of it. But to me, when you start to speak to the senior execs, there's a real desire to learn, actually. I see that across organizations. I think it's more of an education. And what I love at the moment, it seems in the last five years, you know, senior execs are putting their hands up, going, I don't know, actually. I, I understand this bit and I'm comfortable, but actually I don't know about this bit. And I, I've seen a real change in the, you know, the D&I groups and networks. They're getting into Exco level and board level. And again, that's a real difference of their voice coming from top down. Um, so I think it's sort of progressing, but I do think it comes down to the individuals and those people in charge. And if you haven't got diversity at that level you're not going to generate those conversations and ask the difficult questions of, you know, are we heading in the right direction and where are we, how can we help and support the communities?
2: And has that come from the way that the media perceives it all
0: now? Um, You know, because there is a push now in media. Oh, it's huge. So when I came out at 16, I didn't have, I always talk about it. I didn't have social media. I had the yellow pages. You know, that's all I had, you know, and it was. (laughs) I'd forgotten about them. (laughs) I I love that yellow pages because actually what was in that yellow pages was local community groups. Uh, And that allowed me when you feel very alone and you've not told anyone and you don't know where to go. And I talked to my kids about there is so much more information now that's out there. There's groups, communities, you know, and social media, of course, has its pros and cons. We all know that. But I just said to him, I didn't know where to go. You know, I sort of had to look through these yellow pages and go to a phone box. Uh, I did literally stand there, go into the phone box to call this association to find out, you know, what nights were they, you know, meeting up as a group Um, Just just so you know, as a side story, I turned up very nervous, sat outside for two hours early, and it was a bank holiday. Apparently, it was shut. So uh, I (laughs) was absolutely gutted. It took me three months to get the confidence (laughs) to go back. But, um, you know, there there is no – and I think talking about it, I think for my family, you know, it was very difficult because there wasn't many TV programs. There wasn't much media. So I think media is, is fundamental. And I see myself as a marketeer. I've got I've got a duty to make sure I'm presenting whatever work, you know, I put out there on any channel in the right way to try and push some of those conversations as well. Um, but I think, like I said, though, execs are starting to be more human. You know, they're trying to open up with stories. And we we coincidentally had one of our exec almost come out this week. And it's been so powerful internally for someone at that level. And, you know, people are looking up to them going, oh, my God, I can really be myself here. And I think it's moments like that where I sit back and I feel very proud. Do you think it's
2: more difficult for older people to do it?
0: It depends yeah. if they've got children or nieces and nephews. And I, I think that, you know, as more families are becoming more open, I think that's kind of helping, actually, you know, and I think I, I find there's a difference between people that have experience within their own family, uh, and I think that helps. And I think, I think media plays a huge part, you know, of, it is okay, you know, and to talk about it. But, yeah, I find more if they've got children, um, there's a greater understanding or nieces and nephews, definitely, to get that generation
2: So you said you were 16 when you came out. Um, How was that when you went into your first job? Were you frightened again? Did you feel as though you sort of had to come out again when you went to work?
0: I didn't. Yeah, I came out 16, but it was very much a secret in the family. So it sort of held in. So there was that kind of, you know, don't let people know. But I coincidentally started working at the Woolwich in Bexley Heath, which is my hometown, but my mum had connections there. She worked there. So I had to feel really careful to protect her and to protect her feelings. And I felt extremely, it took me years and years to come out of work. It was almost like a, I had to build trust uh, around people of, you know, almost becoming friends. And it was a more of a friendship. I'd kind of let people know when they got to know me. Because people just didn't talk about anything. That people weren't open. People didn't, and I didn't want to be the one that kind of stuck out um, of the group. And I was very nervous because I was highly ambitious as well. So I didn't want anything to stop me from getting promoted.
2: And nothing negative happened when that came out.
0: No, no, definitely not. No, it was kind of, uh, I don't think it was like a big announcement or anything, but I guess it was, there was no, no negativity, but I guess it was, uh, there was difficult conversations though, you know, in terms of, I decided when I decided to have children, you know, HR had never, you know, considered what do we do with a same sex couple that, are, you know, having children. So there was, I think I was very much sort of leading some of the conversations with HR uh, and sort of looking at different ways of doing things at that point.
2: What was their attitude? Because, you know, often in HR, they want to help, don't they? But the rules are set and, and, so on. What was their attitude back then?
0: I think it was very, this is, we're talking now 13, 14 years ago, and there hadn't really been anybody else that had gone through that process. So they actually decided to treat me in a similar way that a man would. So I got two weeks paternity leave. Um, you know, and actually, I sat back and thought, well, should I be treated differently to a man? You know, should I be feeling, you know, I guess, it, again, it came up with the whole gender and questioning. Yeah. and But it's not fair on men, I thought. Well, men only get two weeks, so that's not fair on them. Um, but that's why I'm so pleased now to see, you know, people can share the, the maternity leave, you know, both men and women. That's a big thing for me, actually, to know that's now changed and, and organisations are starting to allow men to have the same maternity uh, as women.
2: You know, obviously, TSB, you have how many employees are there at at TSB now? How many people? Yeah, 7,000, 8,000, lots. Yeah, it's huge, isn't it? It's absolutely huge. And so obviously, you know, some of the youngsters coming through, they probably don't even think
0: twice about it. How is it dealt with now? Um, I think it'll always be a thing for some people. So I don't think it because I'm a senior as well. I don't feel like I still have the reality of being maybe in younger roles or different roles or, you know, I'm not sure we have different backgrounds. But it still depends on your family, doesn't it, and how they sort of react and support you. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't feel like for everyone it's, it's sort of a done deal. But I do feel that the more, like I say, the more we can storytell and coach as leaders, and be really open it's like mental health we have really open conversations yeah. about mental health and, and big topics as they come up you know when george floyd you know that happened there was big conversations that we were driving to you know let's talk about this this open up conversations and i think i don't like it when it takes an event to do that but i think since these things have started to happen i think just cultures are starting to open up and i think employees are demanding more where mm-hmm. they can you know, in terms of I, know I always talk when I talk openly is I interview the companies really hard as I go in around, you know, what are their beliefs around diversity and inclusion? Can they give me examples of what they're doing? You know, I do interview to make sure I'm going to fit into that culture.
2: So if somebody were to join TSB, what and they were gay or, lesbian? you know, LGBTQ plus what would you and they're a little bit nervous what would you advise them to do
0: i think the first thing is most organizations now do have a network whether that be full you know diversity and inclusion or separate groups so the first thing i always do is join those groups because then you've got like-minded people that think very similar to you and you can start to have really open conversations so i always head for the groups first um, you know, to try and get that kind of inclusion, networking. And I think it kind of goes from there, really. You often then get, you know, involved in a campaign or a project and then you kind of get swept along on the journey with them, actually. Um, I always find starting there really helps um, sort of integrate in. How far are we to what you would regard as
2: the perfect scenario in the corporate world, with diversity now? Outside of
0: TSB as well. Well, let's say TSB to start with. I'd say that I'd, I'd mark TSB actually like nine out of 10, but we've got loads of more to do and there's big plans. You know, there is big plans of what can we do? We're looking at our data. We're looking at our customers as well. It's not only employees, it's also customers. And how do we meet their very specific needs, actually? And we're trying to go quite granular. So I say eight out of 10. Let me be uh, a bit more considerate of, uh, I think there's more we can do, but we're definitely on the right path, definitely.
2: And what about in the wider corporate world?
0: I think there's just some brands that are brilliant. You know, Lego did a fantastic campaign last year. You know, I have to look at the marketing, of course. I can't help it. But, you know, I think <laughs> Virgin Atlantic, again, you know, they're all about they put it at the core of their brand values. And, again, that's what TSB are really passionate about is putting it right at the core because we know we're only good as our employees. And we're only as successful with customers. So, you know, we've got to move into those directions to truly understand customer needs.
2: You know, on Pride of Britain, we regard equality, diversity. We, 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 You know, we've been a big supporter of all of this since we began uh, 23 years ago. Um, is that part of the reason why TSB has sponsored the Pride of Britain Awards for so long?
0: I think it is. Yeah, I think it's humbling. I think that's the big thing about, you know, Pride of Britain is you can't help but walk in that room. We've had these conversations outside is you walk in that room and you forget all of that stuff. You you hear the stories and it just kind of makes all of the, I don't know, I hope that the hatred and the discrimination kind of gets questioned because you just admire and inspired by these people and brave as you, all these different opportunities. I just find it totally humbling and I think that's a lot of it actually is that humbling and everyday heroes you know there's these everyday heroes that we need to celebrate uh and I know that I just get very proud every time I'm in that room of you know the people that are up on stage I think it's incredible and I always walk away slightly different in my views yeah. or appreciation or I don't know I always walk away slightly different and changed
2: yeah uh, that's a, a wonderful thing to hear because you know it's it's what we've always wanted to happen with the Pride of Britain, and when people watch it, you kind of, even though people may be in tears while they're watching it, you know, you go away thinking the world's a better place than before you started watching, really.
0: Yeah, I always cry, though, Carol. <laughs> Guaranteed, <laughs> I always cry. I don't blame you. I do
2: too. Yeah, it grabs you, doesn't it?
0: really it does, grabs you. It really does, yeah. Yeah
2: it does well we wish you all the very best um emma with everything that you're doing and uh i'm glad to hear that that tsb scoring an eight or nine out of ten that's a win you see i to me a seven out of ten in anything is a win and anything above that is a bonus so congratulations and uh uh, you know and thank you for all that you're doing it's very very important particularly with this golden anniversary and it is a golden anniversary um of celebrating pride in britain
0: I'm very proud to partner with Pride of Britain.
2: Thanks, Emma. A very important part of the whole 50 years of celebration and how things have changed for the LGBTQ plus uh, community. It's, it's wonderful to know that it, it's, uh, it's changed so radically for the better. Now, another woman who has witnessed the very worst and campaigned for so much positive change is... Our Pride of Manchester winner, Lucia Fitzgerald. She's now in her 70s and Lucia was forced to leave her home in Ireland as a teenager after facing persecution at home because of her sexuality. She went on to become a passionate campaigner for human rights. She, 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 she What a woman she is. Working from home in Manchester, she told me why activism still Matters, please listen to this story. It is remarkable, right, Lisha? It is fantastic to uh, kind of meet you on this. I you won a Pride of Manchester award. In yes, I did. Yeah,
4: which is Look, look at you showing off yours.
2: <laughs> I just got mine for sticking around for so long, not for doing yeah. anything remarkable like you. And no, um, you don't sound like you're from Manchester.
4: No, 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 no. I'm from Ireland. I'm from yeah. the Southern Ireland, Southeast. I was okay. bred, born and raised by the sea on the coast. Oh, where are you? Whereabouts? Well, I wasn't born by uh, there. I was born in a Magdalene baby home in Cork. Were you? I know. Yeah, I was one of the Magdalene babies. <laughs> I escaped when I was, I think I was four or five when I got out of there. Really, and how did you manage to get out of there then? Because- well, um, my grandfather—they they were going to—you um, know—in those days, rich Americans could arrive up, yeah, and uh, they'd buy a lot of the children, you know, and uh, that was the end of the kids. And uh, they were going to sell me off. Uh, I, I think I was either four or five at the time because I was in there for a long time. I didn't go down to my grandparents' house. Four or five—I think it was five. And I think I might have had a few unsuccessful little starts with people, you know, because they they take the babies for a while. And then if they didn't like the babies or they were too noisy or crying or whatever the hell it was, and you'd be brought back in, you know. So I think I was in and out of different places for a while. And I ended up, uh, uh, my grandfather and my grandmother came and got me at my grandfather's uh, uh, um, assistant. He said he wasn't having any grandchild of his um, Uh, He was off to America or anywhere, never to be seen again. He put his foot down. He was a very quiet man and he made no demands ever on my mother. They were really my grandparents, but I always call them my mother and father. Uh. And they still are to me, yeah. So um, he insisted that I was taken home and I was. And and that's where it all began then.
2: Just explain to people who don't know, because, you know, obviously... You and I are of a different age group. Um, what the Magdalen children's homes were, because, it, you know, they came to prominence, didn't they, with a couple of movies um, and so on. But, you know, for those who, who are listening, who are younger and, and don't understand, can you just explain to people what, what they were?
4: Well, what they were, were, they were run by nuns, Catholic nuns in yeah. uh, the Republic of Ireland and some here in, in, uh, in Britain as well. And they would uh, take in uh, young mothers uh, and uh, help them to have their babies. And a lot of uh, the the parents either didn't know or some of the the, the young people were uh, orphans. And and there was all a a whole mishmash of reasons why they were in there. But they were all having their little babies and there were a lot of them were underage. So the nuns used to take the children off of them and encourage them to. Uh, uh, so, you know, uh, let them go to families where they'd be much more well off. And then they'd, the girls then would, would pay the nuns back by um, uh, doing laundry and stuff like that. Yeah. So that uh, the all the girls had to do all the laundry and wash and work for the local farmers. And, and the nuns just took all the money for that. And as soon as the girls was of age, then they were set loose. And so my mother was no exception. She uh, was set loose, and then she uh, married uh, her husband straight off. Not long after that, yeah. that she met, and um, and uh, she started her own uh, family. Because,
2: you know, it, it, back then, so you were born nineteen forty seven. Yeah, and it was considered. You know, but you know I was brought up a Catholic in north wales and and I'm not far behind you in the years and uh you know it was considered very much a disgrace wasn't it you know if, oh if yeah it, you um, were disgraced
4: you know, as a matter of fact you were you were you were disgraced and tabooed all your life then yeah, depending on how your parents took it or or yeah. how things were at home you know um, and yeah. but um you know my grandmother in particular that took me in Uh, She was very close. uh, She had very close contacts with the nuns uh, at home in my own hometown. And so, you know, I I had nuns around me all the time. And so I I developed a a terrible fear of them because every time I'd done anything naughty or bad, I was told Sister Catherine was going to come to see me. And once Sister Catherine came to see, you were in trouble and you were also very shamed of whatever you'd done. And it was something silly now, you think, when you think back. But um, and they were the same. They t- they taught in the schools as well, and they were yes. very they were very cruel. Uh, in in my school, one in particular used to beat the hands off of people with a big stick when they couldn't learn. And what I I, I couldn't learn anything because I have I know is described as dyslexia, and a little bit. Uh, you know, I'm lucky to get in here today because I have terrible technical things. I I've dyspraxia It all sorts of little bits and bobs wrong with me, and um, so. I don't know what how it started. I think it started from the beatings with the sticks uh, on the hands, and you got a terrible fear of uh, trying to do something, you know. Yeah. Again, after that, and so everything uh, techie is a uh, makes me fright to death. Does it but even I can, now? I can talk the hind legs up. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: well, let's stick to that then. I mean, it, you know, you know, we can learn so much. We can learn so much from your story, because. You know, the reason that you won a Pride of Britain Award, as as I've said to people, is because, you know, of the campaigning that you have done on the LGBT issues. Um, So if I can take you back then, you found yourself homeless when you were just a teenager.
4: I was about um, coming up to 13, 14. Yeah. And um, I was um, uh, palling around with uh, uh, a girl she was a protestant so we couldn't she lived over on the posh side of town and um, we, we didn't announce to each other that we were gay but we were very fond of each other but we didn't know anything about. so it how old her. how old were you then i think yeah, between 13 and 14 okay yeah i think i might have been 14 because it wasn't long after that story starts um and um she used to write me little notes, you know, saying uh, "good night" and all that type of a thing, you know, and, and slip them in, the, in my bag or in my school bag or in my pocket because we're only kids. And um, and so my brother went looking for, um, he was really my uncle, but I always called my brother and sister. Yeah. Uh, my brother went looking for a pencil one day and I said, oh, you might run there in my school bag. Yeah. And so I, thanks. He took it out and he didn't, wasn't there a little note in there from this uh, young woman and all hell broke loose. Um they thought I was having an affair with her, whatever, whatever. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about sexuality. I, and I wasn't interested in boys or girls or sex or anything else at the time. Yeah. And um, I was interested in playing hurling. That's all I wanted to do, be the best hurler in, <laughs> on the street. I was yeah. very good at throwing stones. That was my thing. <laughs> anyway, all hell broke loose. And uh, my grandmother just lost the plot and she basically said that um, she was going to have a talk with uh, daddy and that, um, you know, this week, uh, she's not, this young one is not going, this is what she said, this young one is not bringing any more disgrace on her family. Uh, She can uh, go up to uh, Belfast and uh, go into one of them homes up there and I'm not having this on my doorstep uh, along with having to rear her and the shame it's brought and all the rest of us know this, you know, yeah. uh, she's and not that was all in because,
2: it. And that was just society. That was a lot of the church as well, wasn't it? Yes, Ireland, yes. It was massive. Oh,
4: yeah. The church yeah. went hand in hand. Yeah. Uh, uh, very, very close back then. So, you yeah. know, and my, bro- my, my mother was cleaning the schools that was run by the nuns and everything. So she yeah. was very involved in all that. So I didn't stand a chance. And so the next minute they were talking about what would be described as, uh, I wouldn't call it that today, but they described it in those days as the lunatic asylum where you could push, you know, children and stuff like that. Yeah.
1: So wow. I thought to
4: myself, God, she's going to put me away. Yeah. yeah. And I, but, but I, I saw it as worse than where I came from. So I thought, Oh no, you know? So anyway, as I, I started to get really, you know, fed up and depressed and all the rest of it. And I, and, and the, she started really beating me and telling me about all the shame I'd already brought on the family and all this type of thing. And the Hudens now was really bad news. They were really yeah. bad news to the point where uh, some of the neighbors on either side actually sent the cruelty man to her twice. So I mm-hmm. think she was trying to beat this thing out of me that wasn't there, anyway, you know, but it was, but I didn't know, you know what I mean? But yeah. she knew for some reason and, um, even I heard my grandfather saying one night, you know, you can't keep hitting this child like this. You know, it's just not natural. He was a very quiet, easygoing man, very quiet. And she was having none of it. So I thought, if I don't get out of this house, this woman is going to kill me. Yeah. Are you with me? So um, I started rooting around in, in 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 the drawers for for some money to see if I could just get out and run away or whatever. And the next minute, I pulled out this paper, and it wasn't it wasn't my birth certificate. <gasps> And it had this other woman's name on it, and I had no idea what the hell. I thought, oh, my God, what's this? It was in a drawer that I went never went in before, you know. So you,
2: grandma. at that
4: point, really
2: yeah. thought that your biological grandparents were your parents?
4: Oh, yeah, their mummy and daddy, yeah. yeah. And um, and uh, all my brothers and sisters were my brothers and sisters, and they were all my aunts and uncles, really, I yeah. never knew. Yeah. You know, the thing that I was really devastated with, with, with it all was the fact that... Um, uh, me, uh, my dad, whom I adored, my grandfather. He he wasn't my grandfather at all. He, he, sorry, he wasn't my dad at all. He was my grandfather. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that's
2: he, so it's shock after shock. I oh, know, shock abuse after, after
4: shock. abuse. So off I went. I got up on my bicycle. I did little one of them high nillies with a big basket. I know. Yeah. And uh, to do the get the shopping, and off I went and got the bus into uh, the city uh because I lived in a sort of a country town that had a seaside and thing like that. And uh and got the train from um no it was the bus from um from there up to uh, up to Dublin and walked straight in on the boat and they said tickets please I said my mother and father's coming up the gangway in a minute I said and can I just run in and have a look and he said yeah okay go on off you go. Up I went onto the gangway and I had a 10 pound note that I stole out of the drawer. That was all I had and mm. um i uh, got off at um liverpool
2: yeah
4: and um i uh, went to this address where my birth mother was uh, i won't say where it is but no, i went no. there and um i stayed there for a couple of months and um i decided uh i i had to go for various reasons i had to go so um so you're still uh, what, only like 14. Yes, I was just coming up to 15. I was hitting 15 by then because it was August, September, October. Yeah, I was in 15 then uh, in, in, in the October. This was the August when I was yeah. doing this business. So anyways, um, I arrived at the station and I just stepped out. And I just, I thought, I, I, I... what happened was, when, whilst I was at my birth mother's, yeah, um, I had a little job. And I overheard, sorry, I was uh, missed this. I'm getting very forgetful. Uh, I missed uh, this little bit out. I overheard uh, some of the women uh, in the factory talking about this place in, in uh, Manchester where all these queers go. And I said, Oh, what's a queer? I never knew anything about no. anything. And they said, Oh, they're these dirty old people, you know what I mean? And they have sex with one another and all this type of thing. And I thought, Oh, that's filthy. And then I thought, hold on a minute, you know, I might be a bit like that myself, you know what I mean? Because I'm not yeah. attracted to men at all. But yeah. I'm not attracted to women either, so I've got to, you know. So when I went, that uh, they said, the, the place was in Manchester, so I made for Manchester because mm-hmm. I thought, if I'm that way, and I think I might, I don't know, uh, then that would be where I would go to. That's so very brave, though, considering Yeah, but everything. I had no place else to go.
2: No? Well, <laughs> you know, I, I, well... It's still brave, Lisha. It's still really, really brave because you use the word "queer," and for the youngsters listening, back in that day, that was the oh, word it was, it to was, describe gay, wasn't it? It's not like it's a different; it was a different version yeah, of the word yeah. back then. Yeah.
4: yeah, yeah. If 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 you were queer in those days, you'd get a terrible hiding from the police that arrested yeah. you. Well, it was and, illegal. And everyone in the street. It was illegal for the lads. It wasn't illegal for 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 women because Queen Victoria decided that um, there, there, there was no such thing as a lesbian.
2: Oh, so that so that, yeah, that didn't Queen exist. Victoria
4: saved our backside. <laughs> L Queen Vic saved us.
2: <laughs> and threw so all the lads under the bus. That way. Oh yeah. well. Anyway.
4: So, Difficult. anyways, I made my yes. way down there, and I made my way uh, across from the station, and uh, I went and I sat. Now, when I when I when I got down there, I noticed there was a lot of young people like myself hanging around, so I was delighted. One of them was Irish, okay. and she showed me the ropes, taught me who was who and what's what and where to sit, and if you sit there long enough. Uh, you get to know all the prostitutes and they will bring you a bag of chips or, or oh. a sandwich or, or drink a lemonade out of the pub because it used to be frequented at that particular time, the gay club, uh, the gay pub in Manchester with um, all the LGBTQ plus people plus prostitutes because yeah. the prostitutes went in there after they did their business uh, to get a bit of peace. Uh, from the outside world, so to speak, because we yeah. all welcomed everybody in there. We didn't care who, uh, who they were who living. Yeah. There was no prejudice in, in, in the LGBT plus clubs or pubs in those days. Yeah. No. So everybody that was quirky was welcome. <laughs> we Interesting understood the situation. Yeah. yeah. So I, that, and that was true. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the older prostitutes. And, and there was one one Irish uh, prostitute that oh, it really took a shine to me and used to look after me all the time. And then I started getting little jobs um, uh, behind the bar, washing the, washing the glasses and stuff as I was getting older. And uh, you, you had to keep yourself clean to get jobs and stuff like that, and that's what I did. And in Piccadilly Gardens, there was a, a mm-hmm. toilet where you could go downstairs in there, and there was wash basins and everything. So we used to all change and wash out our little bits and bats of clothes in there, and um, I'd bring them down to the union. They'd push them in behind the bear and have to you be no know, drying in under there for me and all sorts of things. They didn't know I was homeless at the time, and that was how I. So you just sleep on the streets then at that time, and then well, you'd sleep in the toilets in Piccadilly or anywhere uh, else. And I can't tell you the other places. No, where no, I used no, to sleep. no. And um, and we keep ourselves clean because that way, you see, you could get a little job. Yeah. Uh, Washing dishes and you kept yourself, you know, nice and tidy. Because if you were looking like an old scrag, you'd never get a job even washing dishes. I even got a job once in the Midland doing the dishes.
2: Did you? The Midland Hotel.
4: Hotel, Yeah. Yeah. They walked the bloody hands off you for not. And I walked out. I couldn't be done with it in the end. And not so long ago, I went into a conference in there and I was laughing my arse (laughs) off. And I said, I said, I said to to one of the waiters. She said, "Would you like a drink, madam?" I said, "You know, I said I used to wash the dishes in here." I said, "So you don't have to call me madam." Aww. She started laughing. She said, "Oh my god!" I said, "I was only a nipper. The pay was the, the pay was lousy, and there was a boss in here from hell."
2: <laughs> so yeah. there you were, a teenager, yeah, yeah. in Manchester, trying to find that- my feet. Trying to, fight, trying to survive, yeah. homeless, but you've got this little job. You found, a com- you know, as people say now, a community yeah. to yeah. you, probably a family, yeah. um, you know, LGBT and in the gay pub and all of that. So how did your story progress from there?
4: Well, what happened from there was um, the, uh, the, 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 the police came down regular. I have to tell you this because this was the beginning for me. Yeah. The police came down regular, raiding the place, looking for people and dragging people out. And uh, the 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 police weren't very uh, kind to the LGBT at the time because we were seen as deviants and all sorts of things. Yeah. And uh, the um, they would come down and wait for people outside, and fights would break out because they were being arrested for very little or nothing, or accused of something. You know, it was a were, the prejudice was everywhere, even in the hospitals, with the, amongst the police and everywhere. It's not now but it was then at the yeah. time. So they were they were queer bashers, basically, that was dressed in the, in, in the Queen's It'd uniform sure. coming down to beat the, the daylights out of all the lads. They didn't so much make for us, but they did the lads, and and uh, especially transgender lads or are, are, uh, lads that used to like to dress as women, but they were heterosexual. And they used to beat the living daylights out of them. And it was shocking. And Every time I saw it, I went to pieces. This was the beginning of the change for me. I thought, you know, this is just awful the way we're being harassed the way people are being hurt put away etc etc and um I, fi- I i jumped on the policeman's back I-, I tore all his hat off and all the rest of it along with it, a little crowd of us got stuck in and said leave the kids alone you know they're not doing any harm but they wouldn't listen and you could end up then in the police station and i did of course and i wasn't even thinking and um, then at the police station, they they took on board that I was underage and I shouldn't be this, uh, and I shouldn't be, you know, and, and, and your parents and all this, yeah. and I thought, oh, I'm in trouble now.
2: Because that was um, 21 then, wasn't it? That yeah. was like the age of anything, yeah. really, was 21 yeah. then? Yeah. yeah.
4: So it was just uh, absolutely dreadful. So anyways, um, I was allotted a, prob- a probation officer. I still have a care today. Um, And she, I won't tell your name. but Anyway, she went off to Australia after she was finished with me. It's a good job. And um, so what (laughs) she did was recommend that uh, after she interviewed me, I'm not kidding you, after she, Miss McGuire, she was uh, Irish. uh, I was delighted when I had Miss McGuire was going to see me. I thought, oh, she might be sympathetic to me. You know what I mean? Because they couldn't, they didn't know what to do with me. And um, because I was underage in England, my own, blah, 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 and all the rest of them, blah, blah, and what have you. I hadn't really done anything wrong except try to save someone. So, yeah. anyways, but that was the story of every LGBT, especially the lads, they got it worse. I ended up talking to this Miss McGuire, and she decided that I need to go and see a doctor, and that's, that's probably. Uh, you know, the, the 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 reason I'm so upset and this is when, uh you know, jumping around on people's backs outside a queer pub like this and blah, blah, blah. She said to me, are you a lesbian? I said, I don't know what I am. You know, I said, well, I did. I think by this time I was starting to. And um, but I wouldn't ever admit it, but I was uh, to them or or anyone else. Yeah, I did. And after that, I can tell you. you, you know, but you don't want to say it out loud if you understand yeah. me in them days. And um so to cut a long story short, she sent me uh to see a doctor. The doctor recommended that I have a lobotomy. A and lobotomy? Sent, yeah, a lobotomy. Because uh this was uh why I was so wild and troubled and homeless and so you used uh, to have
2: an operation on your brain. Yes,
4: yes. To I try
2: to stop you.
4: From, from uh, for, uh, for, uh, yeah from, it was wow. a cure for it was a cure back then uh, for uh, people with them um, that was lesbians or gay men they, that was the cure uh, lobotomy they they i'll tell you i went anyway i i just i had to go along with it i didn't know what a lobotomy was i said to this fella i said will this cure me and that all that of being a lesbian I, and he said yes he said you won't be a lesbian after, after that so i said Oh, right, okay. So I thought I'll go along and I'll see what this is all about. I had no chance. You, you, you yeah. had to go along with it all, and I, and I seriously didn't know what it was all about. So anyway, I was sat in front of this doctor. I was up in. A, it was, do you know where it was? It was in what they described as the lunatic asylum yeah. in Salford at the time.
2: In Salford, we used to yeah. call them. We used to call them mental hospitals. That's right.
4: Well, we, in yeah, Ireland, we used it? to call in Ireland. We called them yeah. the lunatic asylum. That's yeah. all I ever knew. And yeah. I said to the woman, I said, "Am I going up? You're sending me up to the lunatic asylum?" And she said, "Yes," but she said, "You won't be in the lunatic asylum." She said, "You'll be on another wing." And I said, "Well, I'm glad to hear that." And she said, "That's all right. This was just, you know, a young person yeah. talking, naive. I wouldn't dream of describing it like that these days." Of course not, but and that. It, but
2: I think it's important to use the language that yeah. was used to see yes. how far we've come, really. Yes,
4: okay. you know. Yes. So, anyways, I was sat. I walked into this uh, place, and it was a, it was like a fortress. Every door was locked behind you going in. All these different yeah. corridors and stuff. Oh, yeah. It was awful. I can see it now in my mind's eye. Anyway, I went into this room, and there was this doctor sat behind this massive, massive mahogany table. Massive it was, and um, I could hardly see him. He was that far away from me. And um, I pulled up a chair and he sat, I sat there and I said yes. And he said, well, what can I do for you? I said, I don't know. I was told to come here. I said, because you said somebody told me that you were uh, going to uh, make some suggestions that it make my life better and where I wouldn't have to be, you know, gay anymore or something. I don't know. I said, I don't know anything about these things. I said, but I said this was required by the police and recommended by a social worker. So he said, oh, yes, he said. Uh, and then he started talking to me. And I said to him, can you describe exactly what a lobotomy is? I've never even heard of it. I thought they'd give you a tablet and you'd be straight. And I thought, then that's the end of my trouble and I can go home and be normal as everyone else, you see. He started telling me all this business and then started asking about, you know, we'll take a little piece out of your brain, he says, and then your sex life will be changed forever, he said, and you'll no longer be a lesbian, he said, and you'll be able to go home and you'll be this and you'll be that. My having, my having, I said, Oh, I said, I don't understand. You'll be taking a bit out of my brain. What, what kind of a bit out of my brain? And I just had remembered that there was a woman in the union, a young Irish girl that I'd met, and she'd mentioned that word lobotomy. And it just struck me then. And she, she didn't know her backside from her elbow. She uh-huh. had it. <sighs> And I said to him, and I says, will I be, like, act normal and all that? after Oh, yes, he said, you'll be a whole new person. He said, you'll be delighted with life. So I wow. said, I'm here, I said, so you can cut my brain out to make me normal. And he said, yes. So I slid back my chair, it was on wheels, and I put my little foot, I'm only four foot eleven, I put my foot up on the table, the two feet, sorry, on the table the mahogany. Yeah. And I pushed it, and I pinned him to the back of the room yeah yeah and I bolted for the door and I ran down corridor after corridor after corridor till I finally found a way out into the open air and I got out some side door that was open because the whole place was locked and I ran and I ran and I ran till I went back to where I was living and then when I got there they said the police has already been here looking for you I said well can I come in and they said because it was like you know where we all used to live like yeah stuff. Be all shacked up in one room or something. And that did so anyway, they I was hiding in there for weeks and weeks and weeks, and the police was looking for me. Anyway, they opened the door and said they were looking for Miss Fitzgerald. Didn't I answer the door? I said, No, I said there's nobody here. I said, Called Lucy Fitzgerald. I said, That's a lovely name. I never heard of it before. And she said, Well, her name is actually Mary Angel. And I said, Oh, right, okay. And so they said, have you ever heard of her? I said, no. Does she live here? I said, no, love, she don't. And they looked at me, the two of them. Yeah. And I, I thought to myself, there's something fishy here. And they just looked at me again. And this one spoke and she came up closer and she looked at me. She said, brown eyes, dark hair, dark skin. And you're not, Lucia Fitzgerald, you're four foot 11. I said, hell. She she said, And Lucia Fitzgerald was supposed to be four foot eleven. We have the description of you or someone like you. Well, I said, I don't know who it is that's like me. I said, but I'm not uh, Lucia Fitzgerald. What about Mary Angela Fitzgerald? No. And she smiled and she said, thank you very much. And, And off they went. I think the pair of them are gay to this day. Really? Yes, I think the pair of them are gay to this day. So, they never reported you, or no, they said they couldn't find me, I wasn't there.
2: Oh, wow, yeah, that's amazing!
4: Yeah, it is amazing, and that was the end of it. That was the end of it. And I considered myself the luckiest person in the world because not everyone got off as lightly, yeah. Anyway, to cut a, a long story short, after that, um. I started getting myself on my feet, getting little jobs down the nightclubs, down the gay clubs and everything else. And I was getting older and more wiser. But what I didn't like was what was happening uh, to uh, the, 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 all the lads losing jobs uh, if they were teachers or working in the hospitals or anything else. And all that kind of a thing was starting to play on my mind a bit, the way people were being treated. Because it um, only
2: became... Legal to be gay as a man was it seventy
4: five or something I like think that? So yeah, it was in the yeah, mid seventies, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And um and I, I could be wrong about that, you know, but I didn't pay much attention. I was I focused on the community where I was uh, uh, living and what was happening in that. But of course, that was happening in the whole country. Yeah. That the same thing was happening in every town and city in in, in the country. But I was only focused on on, on my. So I was starting to get a bit depressed, Carol, about the whole thing, you know, because I thought, how long can, can, can I live like this, looking at all this terrible stuff happening yeah. to people, you know, and being put down and being chastised and everyone calling us pots. you know what I mean, uh, and stuff like that. And there was more and more iffy people coming into the gay pubs and clubs, you know, and, uh, and, and you keep hearing of people being beaten or gone missing. Yeah. A lot of young people were going missing during that time in Manchester. Believe me, they were. And we were all getting quite afraid. And I was starting to kind of go take a bit of a turn. Are you with me? Yeah. And I did start to get quite depressed about myself. And um, I was sat one night in this uh, gay club and um, I was thinking to myself, what am I going to do? You know, I, I, I really don't want to live like this, looking at everybody, you know, going through what they're going through. And I overheard a conversation with a couple of people that was sat uh, on a table nearby. And it was three or four women. And uh, I I got the impression they were from the university because they were talking and kind of very intellectual. I didn't even know what intellectual meant by then. I'd never even heard the bloody words. (laughs) I didn't know what an MP was. I didn't know anything about anything. I was a greenhorn, as they used to call us in the end. And so you could beat me till I'm black and blue, but you'd never get anything out of me because I didn't know anything. <laughs> but I thought it was really interesting what these girls were talking about. They were talking about, you know, we shouldn't all have to be living like this, you know, and uh, there has to be some way we can um, uh, get legislation going and all this. And I thought, what the hell is legislation going? What are they talking about? So anyway, I says, "Excuse me, girls," I said, "Is there any chance I said I could join the table?" I said. I said I'm not after anyone at the table. Don't get me wrong. I said, but, I said what I'm interested in. I said is what you're talking about. I said because I feel like I've had enough myself. So to cut a long story short, uh, the one the, the one of the people that was sitting at the table was my best friend for life, Angela Cooper, and she was the one with all the education, and I was the one with all the street knowledge. If you put the two ah. of us together. Powerful. We were the biggest blackguards, Manchester ever came across. <laughs> we didn't care. But anyways, they were explaining to me after that all, and then they were explaining to me that they were just starting a thing called GLF, which was Gay Liberation Fund, that oh. it happened in America, and they were starting uh, the same thing here. As, and the lads uh, in the union uh, pub at, at, at that time in Manchester was talking about doing the same thing. So we all joined up together. And I was learning about this thing, new thing to me called politics. And I kept having to say, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? Oh, could you do that? Could you do this? So I became more and more educated as well as uh, uh, politicized. And the more I, I, I gained in strength in Politics and everything else, I thought, oh, my God, yeah, we could change all of this if it was a place that there was enough of us. <clears throat> so um, what happened after that was um, the, 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 the women's movement in Manchester that was absolutely massive at the time. Fantastic. So when
2: you talk about the women's movement, was that yes. about uh, women who'd suffered domestic abuse? Or was it, this is a lesbian Women's
4: liberation, it. it was the it was women's w- women's movement. It was like a women's liberation movement. Like, like a feminist thing. Yes, exactly, right. okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, um, they were talking at the table one night saying, that's what we should do. We should join the women's movement, yeah, and see what, go to start going to some of the meetings and things. And see what happens. Yeah. So we went along to a couple of the meetings at uh, the Women's Centre. They had a little Women's Centre. It was, oh, it was a right dive. You know, you just took what you could get in those days. Yeah. And most of the women in the Women's Centre uh, was all very middle class and very well educated. But by God, they knew their stuff. And um, they didn't half educate me, I'll tell you, around all sorts of things. Now I was grown in, 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 intellectually as well. Yeah. I never see myself that way, but I was learning like there was no tomorrow. I've noticed <clears throat> the ins and outs of the cats behind, as they used to say at home, you know. <laughs> and um, and I thought, yeah, this is this is not a bad thing. So they, they were talking when it. I said, hold on a second. I said, what is it that women are short of in this town? And they were saying, oh, they're short of this, they're short of that. And, you know, phone lines, women's thing. This is a little women. It was only a joy of the women's centre. So um, we said, who's on the phones? Uh, you know, is it, you know, they only volunteer to go on the phones every now and again. So uh, myself and Angela volunteered to uh, go on the phones 24-7 and move in to a room upstairs because when we were there, the phone never stopped ringing. And mm-hmm. it was women uh, with children in terrible distress, running from violent men in all sorts and uh, all sorts of terrible situations. Uh, walking the streets at night <clears throat> ending up uh, going into the police cells and everything. The police had no place to put them so they put the women and the children in the cells till the social services was opened the next morning. This is the way the thing was run and women were beaten was walking out into the rain, snow and everything with children in the middle of the night, no refuges for them, no nothing. The council never done anything or helped in any because apparently some people did try the, the women's movement before that tried and everything else like that to get something going. Nothing would happen And so we were answering the phone night and day to all these poor people. And in Mm. the end, they were turning up on the doorstep, Carol, with their children in the middle of the night crying and they pouring in blood and everything. The police was bringing them eventually to the women's center and the place got packed with uh, children. So what we did was we were talking one night, a couple of us and one of the women said, you know, she said, there's a big three story uh, house up next door to me. It's been empty for years and years and years. And she said, I was wondering, she said, if we could find out who owned that house. Are you with me and see if they'd mm-hmm. uh, let us uh, use it for this and that and the other. So anyways, n- no one could find out who owned it. So myself and a couple of the girls at the time, around now, there was three of us. There was uh, four of us at the time. And we said, let's go up and have a look. So I had a big sledgehammer and I brought the sledgehammer up with me. Angela had an old car, she, her mother gave. Her. <laughs> I brought the sledgehammer just to get <laughs> <laughs> up we went anyway into it was lovely big three story house so they says uh, we were knocked next door and there was a woman there said no she there's no been no one living in there for years so I said okay so basically speak and we put the I put the door in with the sledgehammer and then what we did was we got in touch then with the press BBC uh, Granada yeah, uh, back in the sixties, you would you might know all the crowd in the sixties. Well, you're seventies
2: now, wouldn't it? Yeah,
4: so, sorry, seventies. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we were into the seventies now, yeah. and we got all the papers out, and um, the the Grenada and BBC came down, and all of them. That was I knew them all back then. I didn't know him before that, but I did after this. <laughs> anyway, we gave him a good look around and we said we've we, we done this because we, we need somebody to take notice that that's women walking the streets with children and we're not having it anymore now. How is that? And this is the way they were, you see. So they were all writing it all down and the interviews was flying. And then we had money through the door in envelopes, food, piling um. up outside the door and all the neighbours from around the place. It was absolutely fantastic. We said we need a refuge for women. We've asked the council so we asked the council again on camera if they do something about it and they said, Oh, we can, you know. So anyway, a woman came and uh, knocking on the door, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and she said, Yes, yes, can I come in and She says, Well, actually, she said, um, I'm going to uh, provide you with this house. And she gave us the house. Oh, she, she the the owner house. was she? Uh,
3: yeah. Oh wow, uh, well, I can't
4: remember whether she was the owner, because um, I'm yeah. forgetting silly little things like that. But uh, anyway, she gave us the house. Wow! I bought us the house. Yeah. Anyway, we got stuck in, and uh, yeah, we opened the second uh, refuge then, and that was it. So uh, in the meantime, I had already started a women's printing press uh, of our own because uh, I asked. Uh, I, I met a couple of the lads uh, yeah. that was uh, married or living with because in them days the communes was all going. You see, yeah, and um. <clears throat> Uh, some of the lads was working in a, a what they used to call an underground press in those days. Yeah, it would be a press where you could go and get your stuff printed without prejudice. And uh, like black people had to be very careful where they took the stuff. And uh, lesbians and gay men and, and, you know, fringe groups couldn't go to an ordinary press and get their stuff done because they'd be overcharged a lot. Yeah. And then to be probably a mess when it came out. Anyways, I went and asked one of the lads if I could learn to print at their place because I really did need some sort of um, a job and I'd heard that printing was a really good job. So they gave me a job there and they t- taught me how to print on these big printers, et cetera, et cetera. And I was there for a couple of years, still doing all my women's aid work yeah. and all the rest of it in the women's center. And I was running between all three of them now and uh, et cetera, et cetera, and really gaining in momentum and gaining in uh, the understanding of politics and how, how it the chains and and the bits and bobs work in society. So I was really coming on a a, a, a great and um, still very tormented though about the LGBT community in the the 60s. And so um, what happened then was the the lads were all uh, retiring uh, to go to other jobs because they were all mainly middle class and et cetera, et cetera. And they wanted to go and do something with their degrees and things that they had. So I said, could I have all the machinery? And they said, absolutely. So we went up in a lorry, got all the stuff down and what have you, what have you. And um, I turned it into a, a, the first women's printers, all women's wow. printers in the country. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And then, uh, then we sent for the union. And we asked the union, if I asked the union if I could have a printer's card because, you see, then we could get grants. Once you had a like right. part of the, the union. Yeah. Could, uh, and the unions brands. were
2: really strong in the 70s. Oh, they were. Paul Thatcher came in in 79, oh, yeah. it was, yeah,
4: yeah. So along came the fella anyway. And um, he turned around and he was saying, yeah, well, you know, he said, uh, women he said, women aren't printers, so how, how can I give you a, how can I accept you into the uh, women aren't printers? And I said, well, what do you think we're doing on the machines downstairs knitting? And he said, no, he says, I, no, I understand. He said, but those, he said, you'd, you'd be classed as a machine minder, but not a printer. I said, She're a woman. So I said, so, so the lads, if the lads were still here, they'd be printers and you'd give them their NGA card and said yes. So I said, and I was classed, now." I said, as a machine minder. I said, not a printer. He said, correct. I said, all oh, right. So I says, I'll tell you what Nelson." is like why don't you I said go away and have a little think about coming on telly with me I said and tell the whole world that I said and I think I said you know we might get a bit of support I said around this I said so will you go back and have a word with your union I said and tell them that I said yeah that the next time we have a chat about this would they be in it might be in front of the camera if they wouldn't mind because I said I'm not going to you know let this like take this line down so they said okay because I said we need to apply for grants so that we can train other women to print so that they can go out and have any kind of a career that they want in in what they call manual trades. Yeah, because there was a lot of engineering you see involved in all this. Absolutely, rest. yeah. Because it was big print machines, and so so bigger very, than you. Very oh, more, every everything is bigger than me. <laughs> Four foot eleven. Everything is bigger than me. <laughs> so anyways, uh, he uh, he came back and uh, he uh, had to give us the carrot in the end because we were threatening to go and We have that debate on the national television, so he came back and gave us the cards.
2: So can I ask you, if, you know, obviously things are very different now. Yes. They're still far from perfect, but what would you say to, you know, the youngsters now who grow up and it's acceptable to be gay, although, yeah. you know, there's still many issues
4: around that. You know, that what they say, Carol, is this. First of all, let me tell you, there's one born every minute. Yeah. There's a lesbian born every minute. There's a gay man born and there's a transgender person. And there's those that just don't even want to announce themselves born yeah. every minute. There's yeah. also bigots born every minute. Are you with me?
2: Yeah, and the thing yeah.
4: is, yeah. are they made is the bigots made from people. Do you know what I mean? We don't know, but they're there and they're, they're, they're out there. So here's what I say to people. I spent most of this summer in lockdown talking to the very people you just mentioned, which is the very young LGBT community. Yeah. I had Zoom after Zoom after Zoom. And those children, as I call them, they're lovely. Yeah. They're only young kids. Yeah, They're all out because their parents don't give a damn. okay. Yeah. And they want their children to be free of, and happy. to be who they are, and happy. Yeah. That's all they want for their children. And I spent the whole summer on different zooms talking to them about because the, they all wanted to know the history and the herstory of how it all began.
2: Oh, I've never heard that word before. The
4: history, history and, the and the herstory. Oh, yes, that's very important. Yeah, because they're both important. We only yeah. ever hear of history, but we never hear of herstory. Very good.
2: Yeah. You like that one, Carol? I really like that one, yeah. I really like that one. Yes.
4: Yeah. So, um and I I kid you not, yeah. Those uh, young people made me cry my eyes out more times than you could possibly imagine the strength of them, the love from them. Um the gift of just being who they are and uh, the young people do like to hear uh, their history and their Then they, they all need to know how it changed, you see, because they heard about all these different things. So to yeah. them, I'd be like, I suppose, like a little suffragette to them, you know, yeah. a, a, a person that was there at the time, and, uh, but, uh, went, and I yeah. can tell them what happened and how we changed it. And then that inspires them. Because my last word to all the kids over the summer was, don't ever let anything hold you back, you know, and never... Put your head down, taking your last breath and have bloody regrets. Do it now. <laughs> yeah?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, what a joy to, to be able to speak to you. It's an ab- yeah. genuinely an absolute joy. Now, someone else who's stepped up to take direct action is hero truck driver Tom Burkett. He's the star of today's Your Stories of Pride, paying tribute to people who go that extra mile. So, here's J.K., To tell us more.
1: Tom Burkett hates being described as a hero, but it's a title he's gonna have to accept. The 35-year-old who comes from Kendall in Cumbria was driving his truck along a busy motorway when he noticed something odd. Looking up at the bridge, he saw three people, one dangling over the edge. He realized someone was trying to take their own life and risking serious injury or worse if they fell. As he said, I thought I'm gonna have to do something here. This lad's gonna jump off. In a bid to help, he parked his 44-tonne wagon under the bridge near Warrington and put his hazard lights on to warn other drivers. He manoeuvred his cab so that it was underneath the man, meaning that if he actually fell, it would only be 10 rather than 25 feet. Tom, who is married with children, waited there until the police were able to reach the scene and provide the man with the support he needed. He was suffering with mental health problems and is now receiving treatment. The man's mum has since spoken out to thank Tom who says he did only what anyone else would have done. Typically modest as he puts it I basically figured out something I could do. I did my good deed for the day. The police are the ones that saved him. I'm not the hero of this story. I'm happy with being called a good Samaritan. Good Samaritan it is then. Thanks Tom.
2: That's wonderful Tom. Thank you. What a brilliant thing to do. Thank you so much. If you know a Tom or if you have something you'd like to share about yourself or someone in your life, please do get in touch for the chance for us to feature them in our regular Your Stories of Pride slot. For now, all that's left is for me to say a big thank you to all of our guests today, to our friends at TSB, to the lovely JK and of course, and most importantly, to you for listening. Thank you. Don't forget to let us know what you think about this and all our other episodes of our podcast on our Pride of Britain social media channels. We love to hear feedback. Well, I will be here next time hearing some more life changing stories. The Pride of Britain. I'll see you then.